Baby Wants to Podcast. Baby Wants to Podcast 1986's Blue Velvet. everyone and welcome to unspooled hey everyone and welcome to unspooled where we unspool the greatest films and find out if they really deserve to be called classics or if they are just remembered that way i am joined by amy nicholson who is a writer for the new york times and that is paul Shear, actor writer comedian and according to that intro a stone cold pervert oh yeah put that blue velvet <laughs> in my mouth Amy, I'm so excited to talk about this film as a maybe a latecomer to David Lynch. I, I find that this is kind of a, a new territory for me. I didn't really find David Lynch until I got a lot older. He always felt a little dangerous and, and scary to me. And and I think as I look at it and, and, and we are going to talk about this film, it's silly that he was so scary because really what he's doing is something that is... I think very pure on an emotional level. Yeah, he's not a bad guy. He just wants to know where badness comes from. And he wants to know why we're so curious about badness. And he wants to let us look at badness as long as we need to, which might be a little longer than what's good for us. And the reaction to this film is polarizing. We'll get into why people didn't want to see the badness of themselves or or even what else might be out there. I, I think it's a definitive movie about not wanting to know how the sausage is made or, you know, not wanting to know how the ear was cut off. <laughs> yeah, this is a film that when it was test screened in the San Fernando Valley, one of the respondents sent in a card that said, quote, David Lynch should be shot. Oh, well, well, let's turn up our amyl nitrate and <sighs> let's pull it. The year is 1986, and David Lynch is feeling sick. He's made three films, and he's proud of the first two, Eraserhead and The Breakout Elephant Man, which got critical and commercial success, plus eight Oscar nominations. And then he got an offer that most people couldn't refuse. George Lucas loved Elephant Man, and he wanted him to direct a Star War. That's right. Lynch did refuse, but he said yes to another big-budget sci-fi epic, the chance to make his version of Dune, which he did, and then saw chopped up to bits by the studio, and even then, it still flopped. I mean, Lynch knew he made a mistake. As he said, you die once because he sold out. You die twice because it was a failure. You're down, and everyone knows that you're down, and that you're fucked up, and you're a loser. And you say, okay, you just keep working. The producer of Dune, Dino De Laurentiis, felt he owed Lynch a small favor. He gave him a small amount of money and a large amount of freedom to make a movie that was more him, something that came deeply out of Lynch's own subconscious, a small-town suburban mystery. His first film, actually, that is full-on, bright-colored Americana, the Lynch that we picture. And Lynch pieced it together from a story that appeared to him first in images, like the image of a severed ear in the grass. 
The town of the movie is called Lumberton, and it is a lot like the towns that Lynch himself grew up in back when he was a kid in the North and the Pacific Northwest. His dad was a research scientist who specialized in tree diseases. And he even dressed the lead character in this movie like himself. That's Jeffrey, who's played by his Dune star, Kyle McLaughlin. Jeffrey is this college kid who comes home to Lumberton after his dad hurts himself watering the lawn. Jeffrey finds a severed ear. He takes it to the town detective. He falls for the town detective's high school daughter, Sandy. She's played by Laura Dern. But the case of the severed ear also lures him to the apartment of lounge singer Dorothy Valens. That is Isabella Rossellini. And that is where he learns of a dangerous man named Frank who has kidnapped Dorothy's husband and son to make her his psychosexual prisoner. Jeffrey and Sandy learn that there is a dark side to Lumberton. And it fascinates them. Take a listen. Why are there people like Frank? Why is there so much trouble in this world? I don't know. I had a dream. In fact, it was the night I met you. In the dream, there was our world, and the world was dark because there weren't any robins, and the robins represented love. And for the longest time, there was just this darkness, and all of a sudden, thousands of robins were set free, and they flew down and brought this blinding light of love. And it seemed like that love would be the only thing that would make any difference. Blue Velvet was released on September 19th, 1986 and became the most polarizing film of the year. People loved it and people hated it. Siskel and Ebert were divided. More on that later. And the word on the street was that this David Lynch was a deeply screwed up person but how does he seem so calm and, and cheerful in interviews? And what, what is his deal? Why must Blue Velvet show the dark side of our world and and us? And, and why are people so fascinated by it? Yeah, people are like, eh, this film is too much. Let's all just go see Top Gun again, a movie whose romantic theme song by Berlin is actually still number one on the Billboard charts when Blue Velvet is released. And I would say that this theme song for Top Gun could fit just as well for Blue Velvet. I think its lyrics are kind of Lynchian. They're all about watching your lovers, being haunted by them, having your breath taken away. And perhaps Frank's inhaler might help. I am surprised that Berlin did not make a comeback with Top Gun Maverick. Where is Berlin redoing their own song? I mean, what a missed opportunity. Oftentimes, Tom Cruise does not miss an opportunity, but there, 
to reunite Berlin in 2022? Oh, that would have brought people back to music. Let me tell you, my 22 was all about missing the chance to see Berlin. They were supposed to play at this concert that we were at, like, in May. And we didn't go see them because we were across at the whole, the whole convention watching Blondie. And then I was supposed to see them again and I got COVID. So I want Berlin in 2022. I wish I, I could I'm go sorry. back. I'm sorry. Did you just say across the convention? Was there a, like, a band convention? Did you go yeah. to, like, a Comic-Con for, like, 80s bands? Uh, yeah, actually. <laughs> Morrissey <laughs> was there. Devo. It was amazing. Oh, my gosh. I love this. Where did it take place? Pasadena at the Rose Bowl, man. Fuck, like, all yeah. the cool 80s goths were out there. We were all wearing black. The band that does, like, Walking in L.A., they were yeah. there. Oh, it was so exciting. Uh, the, uh, the Public Image Limited, man, the coolest day. I love it. I love it. You know, Amy, I'll admit that uh, David Lynch is kind of a blind spot in my knowledge of film. I've never seen Blue Velvet. And I think oftentimes I kind of combine David Lynch and John Waters as one, as these directors who push the limits, make you feel weird. Because I grew up at a time where I think people were talking about both of these directors as weirdos, right? These were people who were doing things out of the norm. And there's a part of me that like sees a connection with them. Now, as I'm older, they really are showing a gross side, a dark side of Americana, especially in the 80s. I mean, I wouldn't say that that's true for everything that they made, but at that time, there was this, look at a counterculture that I don't think any other mainstream independent director was kind of doing at that point. Yeah, I can see that. I can see like baby Paul being vaguely aware of Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks, but not having seen them, knowing about Hairspray and Cry Baby and thinking, here's these two filmmakers who love saturated colors and women in beehives. And again, that's because I'm uncultured. I'm just a kid growing up in a suburban uh, town and probably listening to somebody like Roger Ebert talk about David Lynch and how perverse Blue Velvet is. You know, I saw the cover box of Blue Velvet so many times. I understood elements of this movie. I've seen clips of this movie, but I never saw it all together. And I gotta say, for my first watch, what a weird, fun like, fuck you movie this is. I mean, it's weird, like, meta-noir that's making fun of noir, but also really leaning into a sexual side of noir that we aren't seeing in the same way, right? It's subversive because some of these erotic thrillers that we've seen, whether it's, like, Fatal Attraction, which we talked about here on the show, or, you know, when we start to see other movies like Basic Instinct, these movies... They treat sex like, ooh, it's sexy, but not in a way that ever feels dangerous, weird, or different. It's it's very much a Hollywood version of what sex is. And this, I can see as inspiring that wave of 90s erotic thrillers, you know, how people got a little bit more, you know, adventurous, but still very safe. And this movie is anything, but it really does feel incredibly raw and perverse and i felt so pushed away by it but pulled in at the same time it's like don't like it is the acting good is the acting terrible 
you be the judge. I don't know. The dialogue is, you know, obviously done with like a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek energy to it, but there are these real feelings. There are these real emotions. There is this pull, like I said, where you are leaning forward, even though the plot makes no sense. And I don't think that that's, you know, a coincidence. I, I think that he doesn't want the plot to make sense. He doesn't want it to come together like double indemnity at the end. I think he wants you to focus on the other stuff, the the real attraction, the sexual push. Because I think a lot of these movies that we grew up with or the movies that we talked about here on the show are all about like this man falling for this woman and getting deeper into this world. But it eliminates a lot of the actual sexual energy, right? Like it's it's under the surface. And this movie kind of puts it on top and puts the plot below in a way well yeah because if you look at what the plot is on its absolute most basic level of what the crime is and what's going on is that in this town called lumberton there's a drug ring right and it involves the cops and it involves frank and we're sort of aware that there's a drug ring and that's frank's business and what would be the central plot of this cop show if it was a cop show just doesn't matter at all like the drugs don't matter the drug business doesn't matter what matters is the stuff in the fringes of the story this idea of there being a mystery in this town and the pursuit of the mystery being what drives the story just being curious about it and i love that you're making this like statement of this kind of being a film in between like the noir movies of the 30s and 40s and the sexual thrillers of like the late 80s and 90s because it does go perfectly in that position. I mean, like here you have Isabella Rossellini playing our like dark femme fatale, being the woman who's sort of tortured by men in this film and being the daughter of Ingrid Bergman, who is literally the star of Gaslight. You know, literally gaslighting is about her mom. And this is this generation's version of it where Lynch can tell and show things that could never be seen in the 40s. Isabella, abused, completely naked, stumbling in a suburban town, never happened in the 40s. But here, it feels raw, even if that's sort of the, the, it's just taking the ideas of these 40s films and pushing them a little bit more into what you can show. Well, because I had to even think that the set design, the the town, Lumberton, feels like a movie town from the 40s. It, the characters act like that. Like, this movie is obviously coming out in 1986. Nothing about this movie feels 1986. This movie feels very much... Like, I mean, I could say it's timeless, but it definitely feels like Americana suburbs, what's going on beneath the surface. And it's so perfectly articulated by that amazing opening shot. I mean, of this man watering his lawn happily, having, you know, a feeling in his neck and 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 having a heart attack right there in the opening scene, which also gives you this crazy tableau of a man holding a hose by his crotch, shooting out water. The dog is is drinking the water. And I'm like, am I already reading too much into this? It looks like that's his dick that's out there. And this dog is just lapping at his dick. And then, and then we just go down, down, deeper into the ground to see this like world, this seedy underbelly, what's underneath this pristine world of green grasses and perfect Americana. And that's where the movie lives in this world of, what's beneath the surface. Yeah, because like on one level, it's about contrast, you know, like these beautiful lush red roses and this great big blue sky. And then these bugs that are just like chewing at each other and nibbling and like attacking each other. And the contrast even goes to like, you have one blonde teenager who's super innocent 
And then you have like one dark haired femme fatale slinking around, never being seen in the sunlight. But what I think he's saying here is not so much that the world is built of opposites, but that like these things all coexist, you know, that you can't have the beautiful roses without the bugs underneath, like fertilizing the soil and that there's this overlap between these extremes. I was kind of thinking that watching this movie, it made me think of It's a Wonderful Life, like in part because, you know, very famously, Mel Brooks called uh, David Lynch Jimmy Stewart from Mars, which is just a perfect description. And if you're curious, here's somebody like asking David Lynch what he thinks about being called Jimmy Stewart from Mars. Now, since you've heard this before, why do you think people have this preconceived notion of you, David? Well, it's pretty obvious. Uh, (laughs) But uh, this is what uh, films for me are all about. Uh, there's a surface of life, and this is the tip of the iceberg, and then there's so much beneath the surface, and that's the interesting bits. You can never tell. You can't judge a book by the cover. But that Jimmy Stewart, I mean, besides all of the penis illusions and whatever, 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 I find that really funny because, like, watching this movie, I thought, oh, Lumberton is kind of like, if we are in the world of It's a Wonderful Life and Bedford Falls and Pottersville were just the same town, like if they just existed in the same level plane of existence, that you can't have your squeaky clean Bedford Falls without like the darkness happening in Pottersville. And it just kind of smushes all of them together. I love what Lumberton represents in the sense that, you know, you're chopping down a tree to make something else. And this movie is all about this idea of, yeah, what are the costs of moving forward? What are the costs of living in this world? It's not always pretty. The circle of life is amazing, but at its core, it's incredibly violent because Things are living and dying and benefiting from the death of these other things. And things are used in a way that they weren't intended to help us live better. You know, so whether it's lumber or whether it's an animal eaten eaten by another animal or someone dying in a bed, like it all is in service of this larger idea that Yes, we only look at the bright side. Oh my gosh, look at my beautiful house. Oh my gosh, look at the, you know, the car that I drive or the the meal that I eat. But we don't think about who made it. How did it get there? Right? Because that's where it gets a little bit messy. We all love going to Target, but then where are these products coming from? Or shopping on Amazon. Like once you start to think about, oh wait, where does it come from? It's so convenient, so easy. And that's where it gets messy. I think we often look in front of the curtain. And I think this movie is all about going back and forth between the front of the house and the back of the house. Ooh, I like that you're saying curtain because it makes me think of the opening music where we're just watching a curtain. Which, by the way, big shout out to Angelo Badalamente, who we just lost, who is the sound of David Lynch, as far as I'm concerned. But they came up with that sound in this movie. It's the first time they worked together. 
And they actually said when they were recording the score, they went to Prague to record the score. And they were there, you know, before the fall of the Iron Curtain. And everyone in Prague was just walking around, not smiling, and that there were men in black coats following them places to make sure they knew what they were doing at all times. And that they thought for sure their rooms at the hotel were bugged. And that all of that just helped them set the mood of doing the score for Blue Velvet, this this movie about being watched. Which, yeah, also have you thinking, we're kind of doing two voyeurism stories in a row. We're like watching Jean Dielman peel potatoes, and now we're just like watching poor, poor, poor Dorothy take off her velvet bathrobe and get yelled at. Um, but that said, like, about Lumberton, I love what you're saying. And I like that he does this kind of double contrast thing of, like, making a joke out of Lumberton. You know, making these, like, really hilarious radio ads for Lumberton. <laughs> USA. At the sound of the falling tree, it's 1.30, and this is the mighty voice of Lumberton, the town where people really know how much wood a woodchuck chucks. David Lynch is a guy who like wake up and make a table if he's feeling restless. So all of the strange Lumberton props are just like things he would make in the middle of the night. But also, I didn't realize that Lumberton, North Carolina, where this movie takes place, you even see it written down on like Dorothy Valens's marriage certificate. Real town. Absolutely real town. Really? Yeah. Tupac wow. Shakur's mother was born there. So Lumberton is where Tupac's mother, Afini Shakur, was born. It was voted All-American City twice. Once in 1970, once in 1995. So they went to Lumberton and they just shot this on site because they realized they could use the same cop badges and not have to make them because they had no money. <laughs> I am blown away that it's a real town because I thought for sure it was just you know, this kind of perfect middle America or just semi-industrial town. I was just in Syracuse and I was like, oh, they probably shot it in Syracuse because it looked like Syracuse. Like enough that it feels industrial and there's a little bit of a city, but there really isn't that much and there's still a lot of suburb there. And I think that for this film, it does a great thing in balancing kind of the darker side and the suburban side, like where the club is, and even the uh, construction site or the the burnt out building where Kyle MacLachlan does his spying on, you know, these this cast of characters, like it feels a little bit dangerous. Like there's this energy throughout the whole movie that yes, Lumberton is a quintessential American town, but there is an underbelly there. There is something there, and I think for most people, they don't believe that where they live have an underbelly. It's the reason why the majority of serial killers, you know, the next door neighbor says, oh, he, he seems so nice. He seems so wonderful. Like, I don't think that we ever want to have our eyes open to there. There might be danger here. There might be something under the surface. And I guess in a way, this movie is showing that it takes an outsider who's, you know, kind of gotten a different perspective to come in and open this Pandora's box because he was there. He is a part of the town, but he is someone who comes in and and really mixes both worlds. And you see damage that it causes in a way. Like this should have just existed in the dark side and it should have just stayed in the light side. You know, a young son comes to help his dad get better after being sick. And then all the stuff with Isabella Rossellini and Dennis Hopper would have been unaffected. But when you kind of mix these two sides, when you kind of get in the muck of the other side, the how the sausage is made, it creates an imbalance in the town. Like all of a sudden this 
very suburban town grows incredibly violent. The end of the movie with the raids and and this death. You know, it, it it's interesting. Like, I think in many respects, while it's showing us the underbelly, it's also saying, stay on your side of the street. Mind your business. I mean, yeah, but I might also say that it's also saying, oh, you guys all want to go to the dark side, don't you? Because one of the first images we see when we're at his house, like in the opening scenes, is the dad's outside playing with his hose. But when you go inside, the women are watching like creepy movies where people with guns are like creeping around up and down the stairs. And even though they seem like the representations of the good suburban women, they just want to watch stories about death, too. And the same thing with Laura Dern as Sandy. You know, she's like this like blonde teen dream. She's so cheerful. But she's the one who's like, you found the ear? Okay, I think I know where where the ear comes from. And she's like super into it. So I think it's saying like how much we're fascinated by the dark side. Like how much, even if we pretend that we're like squeaky clean and innocent, we kind of can't wait to be corrupted. And then maybe we're like, oh, this is too far. I don't want to be so corrupted. Oh, okay. Let me just go a little bit further, a little bit further. But isn't that now what podcasts give us like these true crime podcasts, we get to watch, you know, these stories of death and, and we get to lean in and go, Oh, I, I want to be there. But very few people actually want to be there. Right. Like I think the, the want to peer behind the curtain is there, but the actual ability to go behind the curtain, I think people stop short of that. And that's what kind of Colin McLaughlin does. He, he's so, fascinated by this other side he's so pulled in by it that it envelops his entire life yeah like one of the deleted scenes that he films it takes place right before he shows up in town and the whole setup is that like Kyle McLaughlin has been away at college and one night he's at a party and he sees these this couple this guy and this girl go away into like a dark corner of the party and because he's innately a bit of a creep he follows them and he sees what looks like it might be romantic start to turn more date rapey, more predatory. And he waits a very long time before Jeffrey Beaumont finally interrupts them and is like, stop it, stop it, stop it. Leave her alone. And they kind of pull away and you really get a good glimpse. Like the the woman is wearing a blue dress, this like college student. And so you already kind of know that Kyle McLaughlin's Jeffrey Beaumont is a bit of a creep who does like to watch and kind of wants to do the right thing, but is going to wait as long as he can to do the right thing and interrupt it. And then what it actually pulls together is like he gets pulled out of college because when his dad gets hurt and goes to the hospital, his family just doesn't have money for him to stay in college anymore. So they're like, we have to take you home. You can't you can't finish out your school year. We're too broke. And he has this weird little moment where he says goodbye to a girl who's clearly like his college girlfriend that he immediately forgets about as soon as he comes home. Can't you even come to the damn airport? Jeffrey, I can't. I really can't. I have to go to that class tonight, and I can't get out of it. I really can't, but... Well, I love you, and I'll miss you. I'll call you, let you know how things are. Okay, well, I'll be here. Well, you better get going. I gotta go too, sweeties. This movie was four hours. I mean, so there was a lot on the table and it makes me really interested hearing your take now because those details paint him very differently. I would say that I leave this movie not knowing much about Kyle McLaughlin. Like he is 
pretty much a blank slate. I mean, obviously, we see him get seduced by this, but we don't know where that comes from. I, I think the most that we learn about him is in that hardware store scene where he's like with the other employees, just kind of hanging out, a good-natured guy, seemingly kind of like an Americana dope, right? Like a, a very Ron Howard, you know, um, from Mayberry kind of personality, you know, like grown up. That's kind of what I'm getting from him. But he's not at this fact of finding this ear and he he's trying to do his best. Well, what is going on with this? It's very hardy boys. It's not um, weird. Like you don't feel like he's ever done anything weird. So now that that painting of him in that way makes me think, oh, he's a weirdo. Yeah, I mean, I think he is. Like, he has that early scene with Sandy's dad, the detective. And you can tell that he is, like, creepy podcast, murdery listener guy who, like, wants to know more. And the dad's like, no, seriously, you don't want to know more about curiosity. Oh, no, Jeffrey. You found something which is very interesting to us. Very interesting. I know you must be curious to know more. But I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you not only not to tell anybody about your find, but also not to ask more about the case. One day when it's all sewed up, I'll let you know all the details. Right now, though, I can't. I understand. I'm just real curious, like you said. I was the same way myself when I was your age. I guess that's what got me into this business. <laughs> Must be great. It's horrible, too. But I thought that scene was more of him being an innocent and, and the police officer saying, this is not for you. You don't belong in here. And I and I like that idea that it was kind of the familiar trope. And this whole movie is about hitting those tropes. Like even at the end, after Kyle MacLachlan kills Dennis Hopper, brutally shoots him in the head. Like, OK, son, no more danger here. It's like, yeah, no shit. He just killed. He just killed the danger. Like, you know, in the but the. But the the unaffected police officer just being like, I dealt with the situation. It's OK now. You know, that really made me laugh. Well, yeah. I mean, and there's that line where Laura Dern just flat out is like, are you a detective or a pervert? I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. No, it's for me to know and you to find out. And I thought that was so funny because when this movie comes out, that's basically the question that people keep asking David Lynch. It's like, you made this movie. Are you a detective or a pervert? What kind of a storyteller are you? Like, there's this one interview that I found on YouTube that's from the time when, Bla- when Blue Velvet came out. And it's this Canadian kind of, like, cheerful newscaster. And she is so mad about this movie. And she just keeps hounding him. It's me now from Montreal. David, what is this movie about? This movie, I say, is about um, the uh, mysteries of... Uh, darkness and love that's sort of hard to do isn't it i actually found the movie very disturbing it's a disturbing uh thing because uh it's a trip uh beneath um a a beautiful surface but to a fairly uh uneasy uh interior of a small town why did you want to do that why tell that story why why is that so important to you say yes this is what was in my mind so it's per- purely personal for you to do this, to have a vision and then make a film. A lot of it is like going into a dream for me, yeah. And uh, uh, yes, it is. 
<laughs> Your dreams must be awful. Do you ever sleep? Well, I sleep, but uh, these are more like uh, waking dreams, I guess. Do you think you're a genius or a really sick person? Well, Valerie, I don't know. I deleted a lot of, of David Lynch's justifications just because the the fury in her voice I find so charming. But she basically asks him that. And then she tries to trap him with that, like, are you? would you say you're a genius question? I mean, how do you even answer that question? Paul, would you say you're a genius? No, it's such an impossible question to ask because I think that David Lynch has his own point of view. And because it's so different, it might feel like he's looking down on you. But now after years of knowing David Lynch and seeing him in the world, I don't think he ever is looking down on anyone. I think he simply is opening the door to his weird world. You know, it, it his world just looks different, but I don't think it's ever coming from a place of I'm better than you. I'm more open than you. I am more worldly, right? And, yeah. and I think that when you make a film that is this disturbing, disturbing in the sense of, oh, I've never seen that before, or, you know, that that doesn't feel safe or right. It It feels, you know, this movie does have a voyeuristic energy to it. And I could imagine that a mainstream audience watching this movie would feel like it's too grotesque. I mean, we've seen so much more, even on FX. I, I, I think, honestly, in many respects, Ryan Murphy has taken the David Lynch aesthetic and made it more palatable, put more soap behind it, you know, more, more story. But, you know, certainly, I feel like he has taken that mantle to be like, Ooh, it's titillating. It's weird. What do you, you've never seen it. What do you think? You know, it, it, it's pushing you as a viewer to consider something different. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly why I wanted to do Blue Velvet instead of Mulholland Drive, even though Mulholland Drive is like higher up in the top 10 on the site and sound pole. It's because I really feel like Blue Velvet had a much bigger impact on all of us. You know, David Lynch was a cult figure climbing into like consciousness. You know, at this time, like Elephant Man had gotten him nominated for an Oscar, but Blue Velvet in this aesthetic that he created, when he gets nominated again for Best Director at the Oscars after this movie starts a firestorm, after it's like on the cover of magazines, you know, like like Fatal Attraction had been with people being like, is this moral? Is it not? Then after that, he gets to bring Twin Peaks into the world. And that that version of this look, just like you know, was it in everybody's house? And I feel like it launched the modern weirdness that we live in. Like Blue Velvet almost seems normal now because he was able to make Twin Peaks after this. And it feels like we're all kind of living in a post-Blue Velvet world, which I, A, I appreciate that. But B, I appreciate even more that this film is still able to feel shocking. And I will say that I have had moments where I really didn't know what I thought about David Lynch because the very first David Lynch film I ever saw was Lost Highway. Have you seen Lost Highway? You haven't seen it. Have- yes. Okay, like Lost Highway is so weird, right? Like Lost Highway pushes his like dialogue delivery way, way further down where, you know, everybody's talking like they've never spoken English before and everyone's so stiff and everything is so crazy. No, no, none of the houses look like a human being could live in it. And when I first saw that movie, being a young kid who wanted to like important, interesting movies, I felt exactly the way you were just describing. Who is this David Lynch guy? Is he making fun of me? 
Like, is this film patronizing? Like, is it making fun of people who want to see art in bullshit? That's that was my first take because I didn't know how to interpret him. And so I've I've been chewing on David Lynch for so long because he upset me the first time I saw it. And I just I thought he I thought he was making fun of me. And it sounds so ridiculous because now I, I see him as this man with so much peace and joy and curiosity. I see him as like an uncle that I would love to have. And I see this tender heart in him. You know, he, he's, a, he's a guy who like fell in love with Isabella Rossellini making this movie. And one of the gifts he gave her was something he called a bee board where he captured 20 bees and then he pinned them very neatly to a little board, like beautifully gridded. And he labeled all of them. But his <laughs> labels were like Chris, Ed, Steve, Eric. I wrote down all these names, so I'm just going to read them. Oh, Ronnie, Don, Bing, Bob, Chuck. Hank, Dave, Jack, Dougie, Harry, Jim, Ralph, Joe, Riley, Garth, and Sid. And that is adorable. I mean, this is a guy who like rode around the set of Blue Velvet on a pink bike with streamers. And he always had peanut M&Ms in his pocket. There's something about this type of personality. I, I know I mentioned at the beginning John Waters, and I think John Waters comes across the same way, like this lovable, likable guy, and he's got his weird quirks. I think you could put, you know, Paul Rubens in this camp. I think you could put Tim Burton in this camp. In the 80s, there was this idea of people with weird ideas don't have to be weird people, right? They don't have to, you know, look a way that we assume somebody who might have these ideas has. And I think that's what Mel Brooks is talking about when you said like, he's this, you know, bizarro Jimmy Stewart. It's because you don't expect it from him. And, you know, in many ways, David Lynch is the perfect metaphor for this movie. What he appears to look like on the outside is different than what he's thinking on the inside. And I think, you know, it really is just a creative mind wrestling with a bigger idea and presenting it in ways you could tell he's a fan of film. You can tell that he's trying to make something so personal, so meaningful that if this was his last film that he could actually get made, you know, after the failure of Dune, he was going to go out swinging because the first, you know, the first film, Eraserhead, definitely odd elephant man, more mainstream Dune failure like this, that three I think in a weird way produces Blue Velvet as a mix between all of them. You know, obviously the staying power of it has made it a classic. I, I think in many respects, Blue Velvet is more important in the film world than Elephant Man will ever be. And at the same time, it's not a barrier to entry that maybe a racer head might have to people, but it also shows us like adept control of the camera the 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 way it looks and feels i think you could only get from someone who made a big budget sci-fi film like he got to experiment there so this is in many respects puts him firmly in a camp where he will continue to make his own thing but this is it this is you could tell it's like everything came to this and if it failed he would have failed on his own terms you know i just put this together there's a documentary coming out called Lynch Oz, mm -hmm. um, where it's about the effect that The Wizard of Oz, David Lynch's favorite movie, had on him and his career. 
I'm one of the voices in it. I like, I kind of show up at the beginning to talk a lot about just the Wizard of Oz and the effect that it had on people. But one of the other voices in it is another person who says that the Wizard of Oz is their favorite movie. And it is John Waters. And so I just realized that little bit of connection that like these two colorful weirdos that we love were both reaching to the same movie of inspiration, a movie that is all about like, here's the normal world that you think you live in. And now let's go into the crazy saturated world that we're all really obsessed with. I mean, I would argue in many respects, Ari Aster is doing this on a certain level now too. You know, we talked about Midsommar on the show and I've just seen the trailer for his new movie. Like there is this idea of the world and what is behind the curtain. You know, now that we're not even talking about Twin Peaks and the effect Twin Peaks has on culture. And I think in maybe... I spoke too soon, and I think that Blue Velvet and Elephant Man, if they had a baby in a way, you get Twin Peaks because it has all the weirdness, all the things you want from Blue Velvet, but with the accessibility of a a TV show that at least everyone that I knew growing up was obsessed with. Like they were into it because I think you are right. People want to see that other side. And I think that. Kyle McLaughlin is a blank slate because we want to put ourselves in his shoes. Would we, how does this make us feel? The way the sex scenes are shot here, the way he's watching a sex scene where, you know, we're not just seeing Dennis Hopper keep the sex slave. He's, you know, giving himself this, whether it's helium. I know it was originally written as helium and his voice is going to be incredibly high. I think Dennis Hopper wanted it to be amyl nitrate because the helium would be too funny. Although the helium is also perfectly weird and wonderful too but this idea that we are a culture that that wants to watch and we want to know what's going on here and and not to keep on beating this drum because i think we've talked about it a million times but it is this idea of how would i react in that how would i be and and kyle mclaughlin it's interesting that he is the main character in twin peaks and this because he kind of is a perfect blank slate he looks like a leading man. He, you know, he acts in a way that I think you can see yourself in him. He doesn't seem bigger than you. Like there are stars that like, oh, they're so attractive. How could I ever be like this? But Kyle McLaughlin, I think, has all the right energy to be someone we might aspire to be as the typical American male, right? But without any trappings. Like I don't know much about Kyle McLaughlin. I think back then too, he is this perfect vessel for us to go into a dark underworld. Yeah. I mean, Dune was his first movie, so he could be warped to whatever David Lynch wanted him to be. And it's true. Like in, in Twin Peaks, he's furthering this. He's just like, okay, I was a dabbling detective and now I am a full on FBI investigator. But actually to what you're saying, like that was sort of one of my theses that I kind of said about him and the Wizard of Oz was that I feel like David Lynch uses the Wizard of Oz as a way of shaking hands with the audience and saying, I'm not that weird. We both love the same movie and I'll use the things you know about that movie and I'll fold them into my own movies so that my movies seem more recognizable to you. You know, because what he's doing here is he's got a movie that's about a woman named Dorothy. She wears red shoes There's elements in here where he's using her like this Dorothy figure who's sort of like lost over the rainbow. The idea that she's singing it like Judy Garland, I just love that. And also, 
when you start looking for the Wizard of Oz stuff, it's just, it's there in all of his films. You know, Wizard of Oz, like, the witch actually even just appears in Wild at Heart. You can't hide it. I mean, red shoes in his movies, curtains, the whole thing. But you know what's so weird is, like, the moment when I think I finally first felt like I connected with David Lynch on a level that wasn't just an intellectual appreciation of who you are as a human and how I see all of that working in your movies was when I learned to try to let go a little bit more and feel them. Because, I mean, this movie, of course, it's all about, like, what does a dream feel like when it's put on screen? You know, he's, like, hammering at home at you. I mean, he has a whole number where they're singing, like, in dreams. Don't be a good neighbor to her. I'll send you a love letter. Straight from my heart, fucker! You know what a love letter is? It's a bullet from a fucking gun, fucker! You receive a love letter from me, you're fucked forever! You understand, fuck? And to me, that kind of helps even just the the plotting make sense. Because, you know, when you're living in a dream, when you're having a dream, your dream is organized by emotions and by feeling. It's not organized by logic, right? You right. know, like dreams are sort of operated on that level. And the one thing that people really know about David Lynch is that he's a guy who's like super into transcendental meditation. And that's not really my thing, but I was taken to a transcendental meditation class once where they talked about um, just letting whatever kind of floats into your head float into your head, which is how he talks about getting his ideas that they sort of come to him in, you know, awake dreams, basically. Yeah. I actually did the same style TM that David Lynch does. Right. And he has this idea in there about I'm probably going to butcher it all but catching the bigger fish like yeah. can you can how deep can you go to allow these odd ideas to come in and 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 when you think about TM as like dropping below the surface it's a really interesting idea and and what you're kind of seeing is it's almost like you're on an elevator going through you know a giant mall. There is a lot of distracting things on every level as you go down, but you just have to be like, I saw it. I'm going down further. I saw it. I saw it. like you have to kind of keep on knowing that the ride is not over and 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 kind of push out. And then when you get to that that bottom, you can really pull in things that you haven't even allowed yourself to acknowledge. And it's 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 amazing. It does work. Yeah, exactly. Like I would love to be a person who does it you know, frequently the way that like you lynch my boyfriend, my best friend really do as a way of like connecting. But I swear. You know that he also does it on every set. He makes people after lunch take a, a meditation break. Now you don't have to do a meditation break, but he builds that time in. So lunch is, you know, an hour. And then after that, he allows everyone to have that downtime to Reset, And when you can, I've had a harder time doing it as a parent, but that ability to reset yourself and allow new things in, because I think we are constantly, you know, images, everything is being shoved at us. So just to kind of push through a crowd, it does help reset your brain. It gives you energy. It, it kind of gives you a second of real pure mental focus. You're not doing anything more than just cleaning it out. It's like just clearing the desk 
Totally. And I love that as a way of pursuing art, even like he said, part of why he wanted to tell the Blue Velvet story is that he didn't understand it, you know, in that quest for sort of finding an, an understanding of even what interests you or like the mysteries that are inside your own head as a, as a driver. You know, I love that kind of I don't know how to call it, like lane traffic, whatever it is. It, it's such a different version of telling a story than something more like. Christopher Nolan or even Fargo, you know, like yes, where it's like, allows, oh, no, I have this whole mechanical thing worked out. It's like, no, we're doing this on a different track. He allows for happy accidents. There's a moment where Dennis Hopper is beating the shit out of Kyle MacLachlan and is like, and the way it sounds in the movie is like, I am you, you are me, or there's some version of it where he didn't intend it to come out this way, this idea that like Dennis Hopper was saying to Kyle MacLachlan, like, we are one, but that's the way it sounded because of the way that Dennis Hopper said it. And he's like, Oh, I like that. I like that interpretation of it. Like he is open to letting the magic of whatever's happening dictate another answer. And that's why I think it's kind of fascinating when you look online, you see these Reddit threads of like, well, what really happened in that final scene that Kyle McLaughlin walks into, like where the corrupt police officer is shot and there's you know, Isabella Rossellini's husband tied up with the velvet in his mouth um, and dead missing his ear. Like, who cares? That's not the story. The story isn't the murder mystery. The story is this. It's like a dream. Like you said, it is. It's like you don't get up and tell people the plot of your dream. It's more or if you do, it's more about how you felt. Like, what did you feel? You felt the anxiety. You feel these. You felt passion. You felt betrayal you know the the emotions make you tell the story but it doesn't make much sense so this movie does sound like kyle mclaughlin's dream there's a woman and she grabbed me and she you know i watched this man do this thing it's it it feels disjointed uh and i love that and i think to kind of try to figure out what the ending is i think it does make sense on some level but you don't need that's excess. We don't need that. The story is deeper. I think Double Indemnity is a deeper story because it's about, you know, this man who is an ordinary man who's driven to kill because of his, you know, sexual urges, you know, and and do anything for this. It's like that's the more interesting story. We don't yes, the double crosses, the 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 plotting is great, but it is the reason why we're watching these things is what would I do? How would I act in that? Not like, Ooh, I, how I would make this, I would turn, I I would actually have done, you know, I don't think everyone's trying to unpack it. I think people are trying to say, how does that make you feel? And that's, I think that's why the movie is so disturbing because if you try to look at it and make sense of it, it feels like it makes no sense. It feels like, well, what am I missing here? What am I too stupid not to get this? But if you just try to feel it, that's the push pull of the movie. It's pushing you away by saying, don't look at me as a conventional movie, but it's pulling you in by saying, just let let me just make you feel something. Yeah. Like David Lynch said, everybody is a mix of good and evil. You know, everybody has a bunch of stuff swimming in them. And I don't think more people are aware of the dark parts of themselves. So it's almost like he's inviting you to spy on yourself through the closet door. Like, aren't you curious in watching this movie? What are you feeling while you're watching this movie that's about the act of watching? You know, like Isabella Rossellini right. has mentioned that a lot of times, like when they were filming, especially the attack scenes where, you know, she and Dennis Hopper were doing these like kind of violent sexual attack scenes that as they were filming them, David Lynch was giggling like hysterically. 
And she would ask him about it over the years. Like, why on earth are you laughing? She was very open. He kept laughing during these scenes. He kept laughing. It was so weird. And he finally was like, you know, I don't know why I was laughing. Maybe some psychiatrist out there could explain to me why I was laughing. I have no idea. And he was happy just kind of chalking it up that way. And yet, when this movie came out, the president of the Seattle Association of Psychiatrists said that David Lynch has, quote, an intuitive understanding of human psychology that is at the genius level. I guess he is a genius. I guess he could have like just quoted that back to that newscaster lady. I am a genius, according to the president of the Seattle Association of Psychiatrists. But that he understands other people, at least, even if he claims he doesn't always understand everything about himself, even though he spends a lot of time kind of checking in with himself and his interests. I appreciate that, that he's like, eh, maybe there is an answer. Maybe I don't need to find the answer. I think this difference that David Lynch has is he looks at all sex is perverse in a weird way, right? Like, yes, Dennis Hopper's, you know, call me daddy, you're my mommy, I want sex. Like that scene where he is over the top or or looks down the barrel of the camera, you know, and 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 says these lines, you know. Mommy. Mommy loves you. Baby wants to fuck. Get ready to fuck! You fuckers, fucker! You fucker! Don't you fucking look at me! Taken out of context, all that stuff is funny. All, you know, this pomp and circumstance around sexuality is funny. You know, we are animals and, you know, and animals don't have any of that. But when you look at it and you look at the dances that people play, yes, these are extreme versions of those dances. But it is like there is still like a performance element to it. And I think that there is something there on some level. I haven't really thought about that before you just said that. But I think that all sex is funny, but we treat it like, ooh, it's sexy. This is so sexy. What are we watching? But, you know, you watch those seeds with a different point of view and, and, you know, basic instinct or fatal attraction or unfaithful, whatever these movies are, body heat. And you can start laughing at them, too, because they are just silly. We are silly. Like, we are silly in the way that we treat ourselves. But we often treat all of our things like that, like personal sexy secret, you know. And to see somebody's stuff out there that's so extreme, I think it makes it fun. I think it does make it funny. Yeah, I mean, it's funny and it's awkward and it leads you to uncomfortable places. I mean, probably top five most horrific scene in this movie is when Jeffrey and Dorothy are hooking up in her room. And, you know, she's sort of like asking him, are you a bad boy? Are you a bad boy? And he in that scene is like very turned on, very hot. This is the sexiest thing that's probably ever happened to him in his entire life. And then she wants him to hit her. And the worst part about it is not just even that she asks, but that he gets so upset that he does. I'm doing it. Are you a bad boy? What do you mean? Do you want to do bad things? Anything. Anything. What do you want? I want you to hurt me. No. I don't want to hurt you. I told you I want to help you. Dorothy, I know some of what's happening. Frank is your husband and son, doesn't he? Dorothy, you gotta do something. Go to the police. Yes. No police. No 
Please. Don't hit me. No, no. Get away. Get away from my bed. And that is the moment that haunts him, this moment where he is like, I've been watching this woman get knocked around by Frank. I've been thinking Frank is such a bad person. And then here I was in a moment not that different. And I was capable of doing the same thing. And that to me is terrifying and also honest in a way that I find comforting. Like I find it to be like, thank you for saying something like that. And I also want to be very careful in saying this because, it, you know, you... Frank is keeping her captive as this sex slave, but there was a part of it, I think, where he's saying, but she likes playing this game too, right? And and I don't want that to say like, that's true for everything, but I think that that's what, that's what that scene kind of shows. It's like, she is turned on by that force in a way right that in this particular character and i think he's looking at it one way seeing it from his very state existence going this is wrong i mean this is the whole idea behind snm right like this idea of like you if i was to look at it one way i might feel like oh my gosh this you know this person is being so uh, abusive to this other person it's like oh no but that was what they agreed upon before they did it this is the part of the the rules that they play in this in this, I, I think there's something really interesting about that scene and that switch. Yes, he's like, I would never do that. She doesn't want that. And then it's like, I am capable of doing that. She does want that. And I kind of like it too. It's like, it, it does give you this, uh, this idea of like, who are we to judge? I mean, who are we to judge? I'm reading for a book club right now, an erotic gargoyle fiction novel that's mm-hmm. about a a sugar baby who starts having sex with a gargoyle and they have a very complicated relationship quite like this. He spanks her immediately. And I keep thinking though, you know, that when this film came out, like one of the things everybody was super upset with was this kind of treatment that the film had of Dorothy, you know, like was this film misogynistic is David Lynch misogynistic for being able to come up with a story in which Dorothy is treated like this, you know, especially the scene where we know that something terrible has happened to Dorothy overnight, some sort of physical violence, um, possibly a sexual attack. She's like found in the front yard of, of Jeff's house, completely stripped naked and, and sobbing and absolutely just broken. And that scene just started a firestorm. I mean, I'll let Ebert express his absolute anger. Blue Velvet is a movie that really challenges you to think about your reactions to it. And my reaction is, I think this movie is cruelly unfair to its actors. It was directed by David Lynch, the same man who made Eraserhead and Dune. And he's a talented director. You can see that here in scenes that have a lot of power. But he asked Isabella Rossellini in this movie to be undressed and humiliated on the screen, as few actresses ever have been, certainly in non-porno roles. And then he tries to take the edge off her shocking scenes by turning the whole thing into some kind of a joke. Well, either this material is funny, in which case you don't take advantage of your stars, or it isn't funny, in which case it shouldn't have so much campy and adolescent dialogue along with the really powerful sexual scenes. Sure, the movie's well made, but the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. And a lot of people agreed with Ebert. Like in Ebert's review, he said, you know, that scene bothered me so much that I sat down with David Lynch and I was like, you need to tell me why you even had that moment in there. And David Lynch tells him the story that Ebert then like recalls in his review that when David Lynch was little, he was outdoors one night. 
he saw a naked woman walking towards him in the street, just like this. Him and his brother were out there. She was dazed. She was crying. And that he started crying, too, that he knew that something was wrong. And that his, like, first response to this woman, you know, who was stripped naked wasn't sexual. It was, oh, God, what happened? And that he wanted to kind of capture that moment and how he felt about it. And... It was not easy on Isabella Rossellini. Like, she was fired by her agents after this film came out. Apparently, the nuns at the Catholic school that she went to called her up and were like, we're praying for you. Something's really wrong. And she herself would say, like, if people liked Blue Velvet, they would say that David was a genius. But if they didn't like Blue Velvet, they would usually just talk about me, you know, and talk about why I was in Mm. it, all this projection of me, what was wrong with me, you know. I mean, this is her even kind of talking about filming that scene and how she felt about it has told me that when he was a little boy and was going home with his brother, they saw a naked lady walking in the streets, and they didn't feel titillating. They didn't say, oh, naked lady. They, they started to cry. They understood that something violent or frightening was happening, and uh, he wanted to convey that idea, and that was David's direction. When David was talking about it, I had in mind the photo of Nick Ott, of the girl uh, in Vietnam, Uh, being burned by Nepal. She's walking on the street naked and it's a gesture of helplessness. Dorothy at that moment had to be broken, had to hit bottom. And if I would come out covering myself, she still had a sense of self. She still had a sense of protecting herself or dignity. And you know, I thought that one thing that David Lynch said about this whole firestorm was really interesting and it felt applicable to a lot of I would say like bad faith criticism of modern films. He said, you know, people have an idea that Dorothy was in every woman instead of just being Dorothy. That's where the problem starts. If it's just Dorothy and her story, which it is to me, then everything is fine. But when you start talking about women versus a woman, then you're getting into this area of generalizations and you just cannot win. There is no generalization. There is a billion different stories and possibilities. And I really found that striking, you know, because I think we do flatline treatment of characters into, oh, you're saying this about all men or like all women or this is how you feel about all of this kind of type of person. We even had this conversation about Jean Dielman last week, you know, is Jean and every woman and we're watching a story about how women live their lives doing things we don't see or is she like a very singular murderess and what's the better way to talk about her and to see her? And just as a person who's so sick of movies being written off as completely misogynistic instead of exploring them further, I I really like going back to this moment and just talking about how people hashed it out in 1986. I do want to talk about that scene, though, because that scene, what struck me about it was the way Kyle MacLachlan embraces her. He's just had this wonderful night with Laura Dern or something that is a cliched romantic night where you feel like, okay, this relationship is going, but he then just kind of leaves that aside and and takes care of her. And there's something about the humanity there. There's something about this moment of maybe connecting these two worlds. We've been talking about it throughout the whole podcast, like this person who goes into another world. And in that moment, the two worlds collide. The, The bullies from Laura Dern school see what real bullies might do to this woman. And, and, this love that he has on the safe side of the world, he sees this connection that he has to this woman. And maybe she's longing for that kind of connection to him. It it's a really interesting moment because I think it's one of the only times, besides the last scene, 
uh, where Laura Dern comes in with her dad, where we see the two worlds intersect. It's almost like they shouldn't belong here. Yeah, totally. Because, I mean, in bringing up the bullies, to me, that's one of the most interesting levels of the film, which is you could say that, okay, this is a film where like squeaky clean college student is like watching this woman, Isabella Rossellini, who's living in this like really screwed up romantic life where she's married, but she's being forced to have sex with this man. And she's also having sex with Kyle McLaughlin. But in a way, that kind of complicated dynamic is just being repeated by everybody else in the film. Like Isabella Rossellini's position is not the exception. You know, Kyle's girlfriend gets cut out, but he literally just told a girl that he loved her before he comes home and then starts romancing these two girls and being caught up in like what's basically a love square. And the same thing is happening even with Laura Dern. You know, she's like cheating on her boyfriend, Mike, the football player, to be with her version of the dangerous guy who is Kyle McLaughlin. And it's like everybody is kind of mimicking the bad side of town's behavior. And I mean, to the point that like when they're getting chased by these high school bullies, he thinks it's Frank. He thinks they're getting chased by one version of bad guys, but it's really just another version of the other bad guys. And you can tell how much it kind of turns Laura Dern on that she's like being a bit of a bad girl, you know, cheating a little bit on Mike, gossiping to her friends, like keep my secret. They're acting like they're having an affair, her and Kyle McLaughlin, even before they start kissing. You know, they're like, oh, we're going to hide over here in the diner. And it is hot for her. She's like, she's enjoying it too. And so, like, the gap between her and Isabella seems huge, seems like a chasm, but in a way, they they share this core. Yeah, I, I think it's the mirror image of who we are and who we might want to be or, you know, or what society will let us be. I, I really, I get how this movie pissed people off. I get it. I get it. I also see how, when I read reviews, and I went back and read some reviews too of people's experiences with this movie. They either left like Roger Ebert or they came in wanting to tell all their friends about it. Like, oh my God, I need to tell you about this movie. Like this is, you need to go see this. It, it is one of these things. It's like, I need to, someone to talk about this movie with because I think, again, it walks that line of not being so out of the mainstream that you would write it off as something that maybe is more John Watersy, you know, that something that is a little bit more on the the fringe side. It it, it feels elevated. It feels like it's like a house that looks pretty from the outside, and you walk inside and you're like, oh, I, I, is it? Why is there plastic on all the furniture? And okay, okay, that person seems okay. What's going on here? Like you're just you're off balance. Everything is right, but it's also wrong. Now let me ask you: Do you think this movie would be different? If David Lynch had gotten his first casting choice for the Dorothy part, which was Helen Mirren. Oh, wow. You know, it's so interesting because sadly, I think of Helen Mirren as Helen Mirren of now. So I'm having a hard time even understanding what 1986 Helen Mirren might be. Oh, she was really, she was really sexy. There is something to Isabella Rossellini in the way that she feels not of this town. She feels foreign. And also, I do think kind of that element of like layering on the the Ingrid Bergman of it all and just the way that you can stare at Isabella Rossellini's face for hours is wonderful. I mean, that's kind of how she and David Lynch even got together to do this part was like he was at dinner um, at this restaurant having a dinner and she was also there and their tables got pushed together. And he she mentioned that she had just done a film with Helen Mirren. And it was like, oh, my God, can you give Helen my number? Please, I really want her to do this movie. 
Is it true that when you went to uh, be in Blue Velvet, yes. that David Lynch first wanted to cast oh, Helen cool. yes. Mirren? Yes, and I just finished a film with Helen Mirren. So David sat next to me and said, can I have a phone number? Please, she turned me down. I want Helen he Mirren. He wanted and Helen Mirren for that role. Badly, badly. And you convinced him, no, it should be me. No, no, I didn't convince him. I said, I cannot give you her phone number. Oh, you but, did, is no. that what you did? <laughs> You totally I, stumped I, I mean, David Lynch, really? Yeah, well, they, well, you know, I mean, I said, you know, I, I don't know, you know, you don't give out the numbers of actresses. And, and then the next day, the door rang and, and there was a messenger with the script and a note from David Lynch that said, on second thought, since I was turned out by Helen Mirren, will you consider it? And, you know, for as much heat as the Dorothy character took, one of the things that I find really comforting in this movie was that you know, Isabella Rossellini and David Lynch fell in love. So clearly there was kind of like a real artistic. Like love, love, comfort, like real love? Like love, love. Yeah, they were together for five years after this. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it is sad he left his wife. Um, but they were very committed for five years after this because um, she had just broken up with Martin Scorsese and her dad was a director. So she, I think, understands the director mindset really well and kind of loves creative geniuses and she said that she loves guys who have she called it lazy bodies she said that Hmm. if a guy was too athletic and muscular she didn't really trust that they were intellectual so she loved just kind of creative weirdos like david lynch and also speaking of couples who hooked up uh kyle mclaughlin and laura dern started dating making this movie too and they were together for like three and a half years and so you kind of get the sense that there must have been a vibe on set that was comfortable, where people really got to know each other and bond. It's a movie of four characters, you know, so it really is. I can imagine all the work and all the time and and to get to those places because it's a movie that you're almost working against the dialogue and the location to make these characters emotionally relatable. And I think the actors have to do a lot to to find that, to find those connections. But again, is it the mirror images that our characters have in this town versus the mirror images of like who these characters are as actors and also as uh, the characters in the film. It's like everyone kind of splits off into their other, into their other world, which is kind of interesting too. It is. I mean, though, of course, like as much as it is like this four character piece, it is like Dennis Hopper who gets all of the buzz when it comes out. You know, like he's definitely the most famous person in this movie by far. I guess like now you could cynically say that Blue Velvet was like a Nepo baby film since it has both Isabella Rossellini and Laura Dern in it. And you're like, all right, David Lynch, cast somebody else. But the Dennis Hopper of it all was huge. You know, like he was just getting back on his legs after kind of being considered actor non grata for his like alcohol problems. He'd gotten sober. He was answering a lot of questions, like here from David Letterman about getting sober. On a day, on an average day, how much hard liquor were you consuming? I was drinking about 28 beers a day and about a, a half a gallon of rum with a fifth of rum on the side, just in case I you know, didn't have so, any in the morning. So at least a case of beer. Oh, yeah. And like chips? Do you have chips with those? <laughs> <laughs> no, I... You know, it was for my health because, you know, it had, you know, it has substance. Beer yeah, has, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, And then, and, uh, did you uh, say you know, a gallon of rum or a half a gallon of rum? A half a gallon of rum with uh-huh. the fifth rum on the side, yeah. That was every day for five years. I'd do about three grams of Coke to sober up. But I thought other people had problems. I didn't think I had a problem with it. Yeah. Because other people were calling around. I was still working. Still I thought I was function. working. Yeah. And, you know, according to Isabella Rossellini, those scenes where he's 
connecting to a part of himself that's like drunk and high and out of control while being sober, we're in a way therapeutic for him. You know, it was like, I'm going to reenact how I was when I wasn't in control, but this time I will be in control. And in that way, like, I think he not only creates a character with just like endless memeable moments, like perhaps Blue Ribbon. Hey, Raymond, you get enough beer for Ben, too. What kind of beer do you like? Heineken, fuck that shit. Paps Blue Ribbon. And the lipstick kissing and the the fuckers and all of the calling him a neighbor, which I love the neighbor a little bit because the neighborhood, the neighborhood talk just it keeps hammering home the fact that this is like a small town, that the that the distance between good and bad in this town is not very far at all. Or like that line where Laura Dern says, it's scary to her how close Dorothy Valens's apartment is. You know, that everything scary is so nearby. We were just talking. Oh. You're from the neighborhood. Yeah. Your neighbor. But what's your name, neighbor? Jeffrey. He's a good kid, Frank. Shut the fuck up. But all of that energy around this performance... It makes me kind of mad that then Hopper gets nominated for an Oscar and wins, and it's for fucking Hoosiers, dude. What? Of course he did. I mean, we you heard us talk about Hoosiers. But I will say that, yeah, this movie is not going to break through on that level. I would also argue this is a performance. When you look at this performance versus Hoosiers, Hoosiers shows that he is completely in control. He is doing some great acting. Here, you feel like you're getting the guy who did Easy Rider. You're getting this guy who did Apocalypse Now who's like, I'm going to push it. I feel, I've worked with people who pushed. Let's go. Like, let's, like, that performance is so amazing. It kind of needs to be amazing. It needs to break through everything else in the film. I would argue, in many respects, uh, Frank Booth is uh, is seen one more time in a, a spiritual sequel, a movie called Super Mario Brothers, a movie about the world above and the world below. <laughs> and as he plays King Koopa, you might see uh, the similarities between these two um, these two men who master the underworld. Okay, I, I cannot believe you brought that up. Congratulations, thank you. I mean, if you're going to call that a tribute, then I now have an excuse to play a clip that I found to be a tribute to Frank Booth. It is a song by the band Anthrax that they did two years after Blue Velvet came out called Now It's Dark. And if you listen closely, they're just quoting Frank Booth the whole time. Oh, I love that. Do you love that? I mean, it's wet, it's fun, <laughs> it's weird. Embrace the weird. So we already talked about Ebert in his review. I did want to say, because uh, I thought this was funny, connecting it to Jean Dielman. He, just like Jay Hoberman last week, did a specific call out to all of the critics that he said liked Blue Velvet in his review. And he was very upset by it. Um, he wrote, in The New Yorker, Pauline Kael says she loves the movie, but her review is an extended plot summary, a detailed description of the movie that seems to imply that a is enough. 
She does not choose to discuss the issues it raises. Dave Kerr in the Chicago Tribune hardly seems to have noticed the scenes I just described and devotes most of his attention to explaining the cleverness of Lynch's ironic style. Gene Siskel says the director is just playing the audience like a piano, shocking us and making us laugh as if merely causing sensation, any sensation, were by definition an admirable thing. So man, gotta love a critical call out. Gotta love it. And they go real right for the heart. I love it. This is what the world was before Twitter. You had to do it in print for all time. Yes, that was back when hot takes needed to be baked just a little while longer. Sadly, I think we live in a culture right now where hot takes come fast and furious. And you can kind of tell with some, you know, reviewers or thoughts, they are meeting a deadline. And I'm guilty of it at points, too, because I think that, you know, these movies need to simmer a little bit. Like, they need to be watched and then like, huh. Does it make me feel? I, I felt that way about the Fablemans. I really enjoyed the Fablemans more after I watched it. Um, but if you were just to grab my opinion right after I watched it, I think I would have a different point of view. I think that we just need to exist in just chewing on these ideas a little bit more. But uh, you know, I think there needs to be like a uh, a twenty four hour hot take. Uh, moratorium. I think the way you can do a email send later. Just give me like I, I want your hot takes, but just make sure that they they're baked just a little bit more. Well, that's I think that's really funny given that we just did John Dealman like the ultimate cold take. We're gonna wait yes. four decades and then we're gonna say that this film is great. But now you're making me want to do for our next film a modern movie that I think of as a hot take extravaganza. And I'm mm. curious how hot the takes will be now. But I I'm gonna make a case for this. We just did a film by a guy who was offered a Star War, turned down the Star War, made something else. And even that he was offered that movie made me think about the modern cliche that if you have like a really good film that plays Sundance or if you're breaking it on the art house scene, Marvel or Star Wars are going to try to just scoop you up and then make you spend the next four years of your life doing their film instead of your own project. And how rare it is that I feel like somebody does go into that world and does come out with something that they can feel proud of as their own. So with that said, what if we did The Last Jedi? Whoa. <laughs> I did not know where you were going with that, and I like that a lot. All right, yes. Let's yeah? do it. Let's let's finally uh, break into some of these, these polarizing films. I love this idea. Let's, let's examine Ryan Johnson, the firestorm he creates every single time he uh, makes a movie, it seems like. And I like I like getting into it. I like getting into these uh, these not problematic movies, but these movies where people really are cemented in one side or the other. When I found you, I saw raw, untamed power, and beyond that, something truly special. always been there. But now it's awake. And I need help. I've seen this raw strength only once before. It didn't scare me enough then. It 
just now. Sensation, baby. Just like Siskel loved. And by the way, as we're leaving David Lynch, and hopefully we return to David Lynch, I'd love to see another one. I feel like David Lynch deserves at least a few films to consider, but this one had to be the first one, as far as I'm concerned. Um, Can I tell you something mystical that happened to me a couple months ago? Yes. Okay. So, uh, that Lynch Oz documentary I was telling you about, I went uh-huh. to a screening of it because Leonard Malton was going to do a Q&A afterwards. So I was there. It was a film festival. And David Lynch's sister was in the audience. And I didn't know that. And I started, you know, I kind of said what I said here about like watching um, Lost Highway, not getting it, being so frustrated. And then using that as a springboard to understand David Lynch better, like trying to work hard or feeling like I have to switch on different levers inside of my body that I have never switched on yet as an audience member to try to understand the works of this guy. And then later that night at a dinner, somebody came up to me and was like, David Lynch's sister wants to talk to you. And I was like, oh my God. And I got very, very scared, but I was taken over to meet her and she's very similar to him, you know, tall, big, big eyes, calm, steady. And she sort of saw me coming and reached out her hand and she had a coin in it. Um, a James Monroe dollar. It's worth like $2, I think. And Uh, she pressed it into my hand and she said, I really liked what you had to say. And I wanted you to have this. And she gave me this coin and that was really about it, but I was terribly moved. And I, and I have this coin. I don't know what else to do with it. I put it in my travel chess board because I just always have that with me. So it's like tucked in very safely. I feel like I need to do something sacred with this coin. I feel like I also need to find her and tell her thank you. Um, Because I was just sort of overwhelmed and like, oh, my God. But yeah, <laughs> it it feels sacred. And honestly, it, yeah. maybe even that's just a ridiculous metaphor that we could like take objects and give them to people. But if you give them to somebody with such solemnity, anything you give them will become honorable. I think that that is incredibly true. Yeah, you got you got like a presidential coin there. That's a big deal. You should take yeah. that. Look at that. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I'm I'm very proud of that. I love that. <laughs> oh man. Okay, wait, wait. One last one last sacred story. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Isabella Rossellini, after she made this film, kept her blue velvet wig, the one that you see Dorothy take on and off in the film. You know, the big kind of black bouffant. She yeah. saved it for posterity, and then ten years later, she got a kitten, uh, and her kitten pooped on the wig, and she had to throw it away. Ah. Uh. But isn't that a nice moment of letting go? I think so. I think so. Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can... Talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen tests on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com. <laughs>